The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation. Because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Wilhelm, this sort of caricature Wagnerian hero with his spike on his helmet and his upturned moustache, he's always strutting around. That was Richard Sanders talking about his new series on the First World War. There is a good script to Brunel. He tells a good story. I mean, he is flamboyant. He's physically very, very brave. I mean, often to the point of recklessness. And that was Eugene Byrne discussing Isambard Kingdom Brunel. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world. See historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for subscription deals. We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of all of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. And I should add that we've also recently launched on Kobo. You'll find us under the e-magazine section on kobo.com. Before our first interview, we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Stay tuned to this podcast for details of your 10% discount. The BBC's First World War centenary season has now begun in earnest, and one of the series soon to air is Royal Cousins at War, which looks at the relationships between the monarchs who headed some of the warring countries. Last week I managed to track down Richard Sanders, who's producing and directing the series, to get the lowdown on this important aspect of the conflict. We're talking about royal cousins at war, and just a very basic question, who are these cousins? Right, the three cousins we deal with in the programme are King George V, 
of Britain, uh, Tsar Nicholas II of Russia, and Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany. King Edward VII also plays a fairly prominent part, the father of King George V, although, of course, he's an uncle um, to to the Kaiser rather than being a, a cousin of the other three. All three of these, are they first cousins in that sense? Now, Wilhelm and George are first cousins, and Nicholas and George are first cousins. Wilhelm and Nicholas, it's a slightly more distant relationship. I I think they're second cousins or something like that. With with, with Wilhelm and Nicholas, you have to go slightly further back in the the family trees to find a connection. Um, But the key thing is that Nicholas's wife, Alexandra, is a, another granddaughter of um, Queen Victoria. So she she's a, another link um, between them all. And, and so is Queen Victoria really the, the common ancestor here? Is that where this family all comes from? Yes, the starting point of this series is really that you have this extended royal family in Europe by the end of the 19th century, which is all descended from Queen Victoria. By the time the First World War breaks out, uh, Queen Victoria has over 140 um, living living descendants. And the, she's the grandmother of Wilhelm. She's the grandmother of, of George V. She's the grandmother of the wife of uh, uh, the Tsar in Russia. And she, she very much is the sort of glue that binds this extended um, uh, European royal family together and it's very significant when she dies in 1901 and i mean dynastic marriages have have happened throughout the century so how common or uncommon was it to have such close relations as the head of state of these really powerful countries i think it was very common it happened um throughout the centuries i think the big issue with the First World War and the fascinating thing, you know, immensely complex subject, the, the causes of the First World War. But as people have explored it over the last 30, 40, 50 years, very often what they've done, you've had this reaction against the sort of great man, the traditional great man theory of history. People have looked for sociological forces, great geostrategic developments uh, and so on. And, and they've certainly been very keen to write out royalty. It's seen as being very anachronistic to suggest that royalty at the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century had any important role in these great geostrategic developments. Now, I think that is beginning to be modified quite a lot, and I think we're part of that trend. What we're really saying is that particularly in the case of Russia, where the Tsar still wields absolute power, and in the case of Germany, where the the Kaiser still wields considerable power, you simply can't write royalty out of the script altogether. Now, we're not suggesting for a moment the the First World War is caused by the difficult relationships between these men. Um, But but certainly, particularly with the case of the Kaiser, who is such a strange and unstable personality and has such a complex relationship with England – it, it really seems extraordinary the degree to which he has been written out of history. It's the sort of elephant in the room. And really in the series what we're arguing is that royal relationships, good and bad, actually have rather more um, influence in the build-up to the First World War than people have argued over the last few decades. So coming on to, to these relationships, how close were these three people before the war began? There's a mystery uh, about the First World War, which is that we fight against Germany and alongside Russia. Um, Now, Russia for much of the 19th century had been our sworn enemy. It was our most natural enemy in a way. We bumped up against each other in all sorts of um, places around the world, particularly Central Asia. Um, Culturally, they were were seen as despots. It was a totalitarian dictatorship. Britain was a far more liberal place. So culturally, there wasn't much empathy between them. People forget this. Germany We'd always been very close to the German people, culturally, certainly in religious terms. We were the two great Protestant powers. 
prior to 1870, Prussia, we'd fought alongside Prussia in, in most of the wars of the early 19th century and, and the 18th century. So it's really very odd. It's a, it's a real historical aberration that we end up fighting on the side of Russia and also to a degree France, of course, and, and against Germany. And what we're saying is the reason that happens is in part to do with royalty. Now, you, you asked how, how, how close they were. Uh, the answer in the case of Kaiser Wilhelm is, is not close at all. Uh, and this is the, the sort of central thread of the story. The extremely difficult personality of Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany pretty much managed to fall out with everyone he encountered, including his royal cousins. But also, and, and, and that, you know, that's a very important aspect of the of the outbreak of the First World War, you just cannot ignore this very difficult personality sitting at the top of German politics, who has enormous ambitions for Germany as well. Now, there is a sub theme in our series which people generally don't talk about at all, but it's a fascinating one. King Edward the Seventh, uh, who comes to the throne in 1901, is married to Queen Alexandra, who is a Danish princess. Her sister Minnie is married to the Russian Tsar, Alexander III. Um, every other summer, they get take their families off on holiday and spend their summer holidays together in Denmark, which is why King George V and Tsar Nicholas II are very close. They're sort of brought up um, together like that. And these two sisters, it's a very important point, this, these two sisters detest Germany. They detest Germany, or more specifically Prussia, because Prussia has invaded and defeated Denmark in 1864, the first of the German wars of unification. And these two ladies never stop hating Germany for the rest of their life. Now, of course, they don't have any, any great power, um, although Minnie is married to the Tsar, who, who, who does have power. But they're beavering away behind the scenes, really for half a century, trying to foster greater Anglo-Russian ties and, and to direct that relationship against Germany. Now, that's not why Britain ends up allied with Russia. But, but that, that, that royal connection, that sort of royal back channel is certainly a very important factor in smoothing relations between the two. And it's a story that's never really told. And then on the other side, would it be the case that there were family rivalries, say, between Wilhelm and his cousins that might have exacerbated the situation? That's right. I mean, it, Wilhelm um, is this sort of caricature of Wagnerian hero with his spike on his helmet and his upturned moustache. He's always strutting around. And it, the, the great problem Germany has uh, after 1870 is it's so big and powerful that it, after it's united in 1870, that it risks provoking the traditional European response, which is for all the other powers to gang up on it. And it has to be extremely careful for that not to happen. Now, the great, and Bismarck is successful in doing that, the, the, the Chancellor before 1890. The great problem with Wilhelm is he sort of struts around Europe behaving as if he wants to dominate the continent. He indulges in this appallingly aggressive rhetoric and so on. And at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily, you know, we can argue forever about whether Wilhelm did want to dominate the continent or he just appeared to, but other people thought he did, and that's what mattered. And, and so you, you do get all these alliances formed, and you, you have this, you know, alliance between Britain, France, and Russia, which comes into play in, in 1914 after the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. So you, you do have. Um, a problem that Kaiser Wilhelm does have these rivalries with his cousin. He, he does see, see his relationship with them as being very competitive. He's competitive with Tsar Nicholas II. He's competitive with King George V. But above all, 
He's competitive with King Edward VII, who is King of Britain from 1901 to 1910. He, he detests Edward VII. He's basically extremely jealous of him uh, and resentful of him. And, and that really is a very important rivalry in, in helping generate the broader rivalry between Britain and Germany. Filling that out a little bit more. Essentially, at the time, the Kaiser is the son of Vicky who is Queen Victoria's eldest daughter. His father is Fritz, who was the um, German, the heir to the Prussian throne. There is a general perception in Europe in the 1850s that Germany will soon be united and that it will be united under Prussian leadership. The great question is, what type of country will the new Germany be? And people have this very strong sense that Germany is Janus face, that has this divided soul. Part of it looks eastwards towards Russia, towards authoritarianism, towards militarism. Part of it looks westward towards Britain and France, liberalism, um, constitutional government, and so on. And the great question is, you know, what Germany will try and what, what Germany will emerge from unification. Now, Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, who is, of course, German himself, has this great plan, this wizard wheeze. He, he, he sends his daughter, Vicky, off to marry Fritz. And the idea is that this will create this bond. This will help create this liberal Germany. And then these two great liberal constitutional Protestant powers in Northern Europe will become the bed, bedrock of peace and security in Europe, which is certainly a far more attractive vision than what, what did happen. Um, and now Vicky is highly, highly intelligent. She takes after her, her father in that. The marriage is a great success. They're devoted to each other. And, you know, she persuades Fritz that he, he's a liberal as well. Uh, the, the tragedy you get, there's a twofold tragedy. One, in 1862, Bismarck becomes leader of Germany, uh, leader of Prussia, prime minister of Prussia. He then unites Germany through blood and iron. Germany is united by 1870, but it's a Germany that's been united by the forces of conservative militarism. Fritz and Vicky, who are still only heirs to the throne, Fritz's father's still alive, uh, are isolated and, and marginalized. You have the second tragedy that when Kaiser Wilhelm II is born to Vicky in 1859, he is born with a disabled left arm. It's a very difficult birth, a breech birth, uh, which seems to be messed up by the doctors to some extent. And he has this disabled left arm. Now, the, the, the Kaiser grows up into this very, very difficult personality, very erratic, unpredictable personality. We don't know the degree to which this is to do with his disability or, and the degree to, to, do, to which it's to do with his very difficult relationship with his mother. I, you know, it's like the film, we need to talk about Kevin. This is really sort of a version of that, but with colossal consequences. And, and people can debate forever whether we should blame Vicky for the way the Kaiser turns out or whether he'd just have been like that. Freud certainly analyzed this case and said the basic problem is that Vicky rejects Wilhelm because of his, his disability. Uh, she's unable, she tries to, she tries very hard, but she's unable to bond with him. And the result is this very, very complex, fraught relationship between Wilhelm and his English mother, a sort of love-hate relationship. He's desperate for her approval. Uh, but uh, then when he feels he's not getting it, he swings wildly towards hostility. And this translates to his feelings towards Britain. He has exactly the same sort of schizophrenic attitude, love-hate attitude um, towards Britain. And, and that is terribly important in the evolution of Anglo-German relations um, leading up to the First World War. In 1914, once the storm clouds were brewing, 
were there any attempts to use this family connection to try and prevent a war breaking out? Yes, I, when you, in, in the, the, the crucial days at the end of July 1914, the beginning of August, telegrams are flying backwards and forwards between the, the cousins. But, you know, actually, oddly, because you've suddenly got decisions about war and peace to be made, you've got sovereign um, decisions about mobilization, and also because these people have their connection, they suddenly move back centre stage. And they do attempt to talk to each other and, and, and to smooth things over. But really, they're not really up to it. I mean, Nicholas doesn't want to go to war. George doesn't want to go to war. With Wilhelm as ever, it's very complicated. But I think it's pretty clear he doesn't want to go to war against Britain, France, and Russia. But you you really have a sense of men who are just not up to the job, men who are just steamrolled by history when it comes to 1914. And their attempts to make peace uh, don't yield anything. Is that partly because at this point, Perhaps only really Nicholas had absolute power. The other two also had to deal with statesmen of various kinds. That's right. Well, it's a very interesting thing. I mean, King George V has no real power at all. The Kaiser Wilhelm still has significant power, but it's it's more complex in Germany. It's a sort of balance of forces. You get a very significant moment in Germany at the end of July. Um, Wilhelm had been terribly aggressive following the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was a friend of his. He'd encouraged the Austrians to crush the Serbs. Um, then And then he goes off on this strange thing. He goes off on a Baltic cruise for a few weeks. When he comes back, it suddenly dawns on him that there's going to be a war. And not only is there going to be a war, it's going to be a war in which Britain will join. Now, you know, he, he reckons... He reckons Germany can take on France and Russia, and he was probably right. But he, he knows that they're probably biting off more than they can chew if they take on all three powers. And he suddenly panics and, and scribbles off a note to the Austrians saying, you know, accept the, the Serb concessions. You've, you've forced them into a, a humiliating climb down. This is enough. And, and, and this sort of peace in, uh, initiative is sabotaged by, by, by the politicians and by the generals who basically don't pass it on in a form that can be understood. And, and, and by the time it does really get to Vienna, the, the war's already started. Once the war's actually taking place, what does that do to the relationship? Does the relationship completely break down between Wilhelm, Nicholas and George at this point? Uh, yes, uh, the, Wilhelm never communicates again with with either of the cousins. Of course, and Nicholas and, and uh, George continue um, to communicate and and really that's the final tragedy of our film uh, of our series because you get to 1917 the romanovs are overthrown the great question is what to do with them and you have this story that's actually fairly well known that that, that king george refuses to have them david lloyd george the prime minister is quite happy to uh, grant them asylum as the provisional russian government has requested and it's it's king george who puts his foot down and says he doesn't want them to come and and that effectively although he can't know this at the time the bolsheviks aren't in power at this point but it effectively condemns the entire family to death do we have any idea of, of why he refused him entry he was frightened i mean he 1917 was a very very unstable time the, the tsar had been overthrown bolshevism uh, was rearing its head. There would be a revolution in Germany the following year. There was a very real fear of revolution throughout 
Europe and including in Britain, less in Britain than in other countries, um, you can argue that he was wrong. You could argue there clearly wasn't going to be a revolution in Britain, but I, I guess he didn't know that. And in the end, he put the survival of his dynasty first. He felt that if he would, he'd already been tainted by his the fact that he was the cousin of the German Kaiser. You know, he, he was about to change the name of the royal family to Windsor, away from Saxe-Coburg, and he felt that he would also be tainted by association with the you know the despotic czar of Russia if he accepted the family. So he put his foot down and said they couldn't come. Do we know how he reacted when he found out that the czar and his family had all been executed? He never acknowledges that he has any responsibility at all. In fact, his, his son, King Edward VIII, later said whenever the subject he was, he was raised, he'd, he'd say, those damned politicians, you know, if it had been one of their own, they'd have got him out. And he'd talk as if it had been the politician's fault. David Lloyd George wanted to deal with this in his memoirs, but was told he couldn't. And it wasn't until many decades later that the, the true story was told and uh, people saw uh, King George V's responsibility in all this. Now, although the Kaiser wasn't in power after the war, he did he did actually survive for another couple of decades. Did did him and George resume contact at all? No, no, they never did. Um, he he sent a note to Queen Mary after the death of King George V in 1936, and she sent a kind note back. Uh, so she she maintained a contact, but King George V and the German Kaiser never spoke again. No. Was this the last time that you had this kind of dynastic war where various? relations were fighting each other could that ever happen again or were monarchy's days numbered at this point uh, well monarchy's mon- the power of monarchy was destroyed in europe was destroyed by the first world war it's the turning point um in 1913 the three cousins gather together for the last time for a wedding in germany and you know that that's a significant political event you know it matters that these three men uh, are meeting together and talking together and, and and for their governments it's an important moment and um, particularly for the czar you know it's very difficult to reach czar nick because he didn't really like politics and didn't like talking to people. So it was, it was a very useful way of getting to the Tsar through family. Um, and so they matter at that point. The um, Congress of Versailles after the war, there's no, there's no monarchs there, no monarchs of significance. Anyway, the world has changed completely. One of the effects of the First World War is to, is to sweep away the power of monarchy forever. That was Richard Sanders. Royal Cousins at War began last night on BBC Two and you can still watch the first episode on BBC iPlayer. For more on the First World War, make sure you check out our February issue where we've got an interview with Neil Ferguson who argues that Britain should not have taken up arms in 1914. Also in this month's magazine, find out about a Victorian royal murder scandal, meet some of medieval London's most sinful inhabitants and get the backstory to the upcoming Hollywood film The Monuments Men. Our February issue is out now in all good news agents and in our many digital formats. And now we have a short advertisement break. Listeners to the History Extra podcast are eligible for a fantastic offer with Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, easy-to-use drag-and-drop tools. With over 10 years' experience, the 100-strong Dublin, New York, and Oregon-based customer support team is on hand 24-7. Seamless e-commerce solutions mean that your business can be taking money in minutes on a website that is scaled to look beautiful on any computer or handheld device. It starts at only £5 a month, and if you buy it for a year, you'll get a free domain name. So start your free trial today. No credit card required. 
And as a History Extra podcast listener, you'll receive 10% off your first purchase by using the offer code HISTORY. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarlane. One year after bones found underneath a Leicester car park were confirmed to be those of Richard III, the row over where he should be reburied continues. The king is due to be reinterred in Leicester Cathedral, but a group of his distant relatives, the Plantagenet Alliance Limited, are campaigning to see the former king reburied in York. The Alliance took their fight to the High Court in November, but the hearing was adjourned. It is not expected to take place until later this year. In other news, a top-secret Nazi guide to the United Kingdom, dating from 1940, was sold at auction this week. The Daily Telegraph reported that the guide, intended only for the most senior Nazi officers, includes information about key landmarks for an aerial bombing blitz, as well as advice about which schools officers should send their children to. The item is reported to have sold for £351. Meanwhile, childhood belongings of Anne Frank have been put on display in Rotterdam. The items, which include a tin box containing marbles and a doll's tea service, have turned up almost 70 years after her death. Anne Frank went into hiding during the Second World War to escape the Nazis. Her diary was published in 1947. Thanks for that, Emma, and don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. Eugene Byrne is an author and historian, as well as a regular contributor to BBC History magazine. He's also the latest biographer of the great engineer Isambard Kingdom Brunel, having written a book about him for the History Press's Pocket Giant series. Eugene popped into our studio in Bristol recently to talk more about the man and his work, and we also discussed whether Brunel really deserved to be voted the second greatest Briton in a 2002 BBC series. One thing that's always struck me as quite interesting about him is his name. Mm. Three names, all of which are quite unusual. Mm. Do we know where they came from? Yeah, we do. Um, Well, we do sort of. Uh, The Isambard um, is his father's middle name, and we think that must have been a name in the family for generations. Um, They came from a place called Arkville in Normandy. Um, and it is thought, um, I, I don't know if anyone's managed to stand this up or prove it, that the name originated probably in Belgium or the Netherlands, as was, and it means something like iron something or other. <laughs> it's something to do with iron anyway. Uh, Kingdom, uh, that's uh, simply his mother's maiden name, Sophia Kingdom, and Brunel, well, it's the family name, um, from his father, obviously. And his father, Mark, was quite a big influence on his life, wasn't he? Mark is a huge influence, and in some ways, history has been terribly, terribly unjust to Mark Brunel. 
because the guy is a great inventor. He's one of the, the, the greatest engineers of the age, but of course he's overshadowed by his more, I suppose the word is flamboyant. I mean, Isambard Kingdom Brunel is a great showman, whereas his father was a bit more of a plodder, a, a, a bit less flamboyant, and, and so has become overshadowed. But, but Mark Brunel is, is a fascinating character in his own right. He grows up in, uh, in France, the family is minor gentry. He's the second son, so he's not going to inherit the family land, so as was the way in those days, he gets packed off to uh, study to join the church. It becomes quite apparent early on that he has no religious calling whatsoever and instead uh, he's allowed to study engineering. He becomes a junior officer in the French Navy. He uh, goes off for four years. When he comes back, the French Revolution is going on and Marc is in a cafe in Paris one day when the death sentence has been passed on Louis the Sixteenth, and he has a bit of an altercation uh, in this cafe with some Republicans. And uh, he flounces out, he storms out, and he, he summons his dog, uh, says, come on, citizen, which, of course, you know, is the, the, the term that uh, the revolutionary used to address one another. So he tells his dog, come on, citizen, he leaves the cafe and very soon is made to realise that he had better, for his own safety, leave Paris and indeed leave France, um, which is how come he ends up in England via a spell in America. Um, and one of the great things he does here is he sets up um, an automated or a sort of a production line system for making pulley blocks for the Royal Navy. Uh, the Navy needs something like 100,000 of these things every year, and previously they've been made by hand. And he sets up a system of machines at Portsmouth for making these things, a work of pure genius. And Mark goes on throughout his career to invent lots of things. His son doesn't invent anything. Isambard is a guy who takes existing inventions and he improves them or he finds uses for them. But his old man is the really clever one. But of course it's often said that Mark Brunel's greatest creation of all was his son, who he ensures is trained in, uh, in, in mathematics and in drawing, which he says, you know, the two major building blocks of engineering. So yeah, Mark has produced a superb engineer, but he's done a lot of great things himself. Coming on to that, how important do you think Isambard's upbringing and education was to, to what he became? There are a number of things, I think, going on there. I mean, one, one thing about Mark is that uh, he wasn't terribly good with money. His fortunes fluctuated partly as a result of sort of trusting people he shouldn't have trusted. And Isambard is away in France at one point studying when he's in his teenage years. And at that point, Mark goes bankrupt. He ends up in a debtor's prison through no fault of his, his own. Basically, he's been ripped off by people and he's had a, a few sort of mishaps and he ends up in a debtor's prison. Now, you know, if you know your Dickens, you'll know that something like that is very, very traumatic for, for any family. It's, it, it's shameful. It's a horrible thing. And it may be that that, for example, had a big formative influence on Isambard, but it's also the fact that, you know, he's, he, he's extremely well-schooled both in France and in Britain, and he's also the kind of personality that can't 
think of anything that would be more interesting to do than to, to study engineering and, and to build things. I mean, there's a famous story of um, when he was at a school in Hove. He and his classmates were watching some builders putting up a, a building house or something across the street from the school. And young Isambard looks at the weather and he looks at what the builders are doing and he tells his classmates that building will have fallen down by the morning. This is just a legend, but, you know, it's kind of an illustrative story. And, of course, all his classmates say, no, no, that's absolute nonsense, and he starts taking bets. And, of course, the following morning, there's a heap of rubble across the road and he collects his winnings. It's a legend. We don't know if it's true or not, but stories like that are told about young Isambard. Coming on to his professional career, what, what was his kind of breakthrough project, or breakthrough achievement that really brought him into the public eye? It's a very good point. I mean, in chronological order, uh, first of all, he works on the Thames Tunnel, which is his father's big project, and that's where he sort of gains, as it were, what you'd call nowadays uh, project management experience. Uh, he's, he's quite good at that. He has to cope with two tunnel collapses. But, of course, it is his, his father's thing. He's not really doing it under his own name. His first big break is uh, winning the contest to design a suspension bridge across the Avon Gorge in Bristol, uh, something that he always referred to afterwards as my, my first love, my darling. Uh, and, of course, it was never completed in his lifetime. But that was the first project that sort of brought him to public attention, as it were. But then shortly after that, he gets the job uh, to basically build the Great Western Railway line between Bristol and London. And in many ways, that is still, I would argue, his greatest achievement. And it's certainly the thing that sort of brought him uh, to major national public attention in all kinds of different ways, both at the parliamentary hearings to get the railway bill passed through in the first place, where, you know, he's this great... Uh, performer uh, and he sort of copes with an awful lot of uh, idiot politicians stupid questions very uh, very gracefully and that impresses a lot of people and then of course there is the building and the engineering of the line itself and all that involves so you know the tunnels uh, the maidenhead bridge all manner of stuff that's the thing that establishes him as as a national figure and as the go-to guy for all these railway companies that are springing up by the, the 1830s and 40s. And then, of course, after that, there are the, the ships. But real, really, I would argue it, it is the Great Western Railway that remains his greatest monument uh, to this day. You know, it's still in use. It's still flat as a billiard table. Uh, a superb piece of work. What do you think set Isambard Kingdom Brunel apart from other people in his field at the time? There's two things going on. Uh, the first is what you might call his genius as an engineer, his, his ability to look at new technologies, look at new ideas and to figure out how they can be adapted and how they can be used to advantage. There is that. But the other thing which people tend not to think about because, because you don't with the distance of time is that he was a superb showman. He's a very, very persuasive character. You cannot build these big, vast railway lines, ships, whatever it is, without a hell of a lot of money behind you. You need to persuade 
people to part with money. So he is capable of going to very, very hard-headed businessmen as well as sort of little shareholders up and down the country and saying to them, put your money into this, uh, it'll, it'll make you a nice return. He's really good at that. He's a great showman. And, of course, the thing is, a lot of the time, they don't get a, a good return. Great Western Railway line costs twice as much as his original estimate. Um, there's the notorious uh, atmospheric railway project down in uh, Dawlish in Devon, which lost a load of money. In Bristol, he was not looked at with great favour by the city fathers for a very long time because they regarded him as a reckless, irresponsible show-off, particularly over the SS Great Britain project, which kept running over costs and he kept changing the design to introduce new technologies like the iron hull, like the screw propeller. So it was delayed a long way. Uh, Bristol lost the chance to uh, run a transatlantic passenger line to Liverpool. Uh, So what he did didn't always work out so well, but he was very, very good to the end of his career at persuading people to invest. And that, I think, is something that we ignore at our peril. You know, everyone wants to look at the engineering and all the fantastic things he made. But actually, you know, half the story is his ability to part people with very large amounts of money. As you've kind of alluded to already, not everything that Brunel did turned to gold by Mm -hmm. any means. Do you think that was a necessary part of having this kind of ambition, being this kind of flamboyant character that some things would always go wrong? I'm not sure it was a necessary part. It's, it's, It's just how he was. He wanted to do bigger, better, faster, newer stuff all the time. Um, you know, and if you look at the you know, the very last major project of his career, the the SS Great Eastern, you know, this is this gargantuan ship that is five times the size of any other man-made vessel afloat at that time. That is the scale of his ambition. He just wanted everything to sort of keep getting bigger and better. That's that's what he was about, and in the process. At the time, a lot of people lost money, a lot of people lost faith in him. But, of course, at at our historical distance now, uh, well, none of us are around who, who have lost our life savings to Mr. Brunel's ambitions. We can look at him more coolly and say, hey, wow, that, that was absolutely brilliant. And, of course, you know, something like the SS Great Britain, which is um, one of Bristol's leading visitor attractions, quite rightly. I mean, it's been restored brilliantly. Uh, It is um, a very, very important uh, part of maritime history. It's it's an iron-hulled, ocean-going vessel. It's pushed through the water by a screw propeller. Uh, It is, in some ways, the forerunner of all the ocean liners that, that, that followed afterwards. So... We quite rightly think this is an extremely important piece of history, but at the time, a lot of people thought, white elephant. You're talking about how SS Great Britain is a great Bristol tourist attraction now. We've got a suspension bridge as well, a fair few other things. What do you think explains Brunel's great connection with the city of Bristol? Because he wasn't born here. I don't no. even believe he ever lived here. No, so. he, never, he never even lived here. I, I think in some ways it's it's purely happy accident. He, he was injured when uh, when the, the Thames Tunnel was inundated second time, 
And he came, as part of his recuperation, he came to spend some time with some friends in Bristol. Who exactly they were, I'm not sure we know yet, but he, but, but he did become friendly with quite a lot of people here. And while he was here, he came across the um, suspension bridge contest. And his connections in Bristol kept coming back. It is a recurring theme. So obviously uh, he becomes the, the engineer that was, originally gets the job to survey the Great Western Line, which essentially started in Bristol, not London, although they found out very early on, very soon enough, that we're going to need offices and investors in London as well. But it, it, it in effect started from Bristol, we think, at a meeting at his, what is now the Blaise Castle House Museum. But he comes back again and again because of these connections and because of the stop-start nature of the work on the bridge. In some ways, his most interesting Bristol project, which people tend not to think about that, that much, is the SS Great Western. This is Brunel's first ship, and it is intended to take people across the Atlantic under steam power alone. It hadn't properly been done before then, you know, until then, if you wanted to cross the Atlantic, you had to go in sailing ships, and it was not only sort of very uncomfortable, but um, or it could be in, in bad weather, but you couldn't depend on the timing. You, you couldn't know what date you'd actually get there. So the idea is to build a newfangled steam vessel that will take passengers across the Atlantic. And while it is said, it is claimed that this is you know, Brunel's work, actually what recent research is starting to prove is that actually an, uh, an awful lot of the work was done by Bristol shipbuilders and Bristol engineers because Brunel himself at that stage didn't know anything about making ships. He's more confident by the time Great Britain comes along because part, partly because of the, of the iron hull. He knows how to work with iron. But when, in the case of Great Western, he doesn't really know how to build ships. So there are people in Bristol, particularly uh, uh, a sea captain, a guy named Christopher Claxton, and, of course, uh, the shipbuilder Patterson and various others who are more responsible, really, than Brunel is for building that. In Brunel's lifetime, was he acknowledged as the genius that he is nowadays? I mean, by the, by the time of his death, did people say, this is the passing of a really great man? Some people did. Uh, a lot of people didn't. And it's very telling, for example, that um, his great friend, Robert Stevenson, uh, died around the same time as he did. Robert Stevenson ended up in Westminster Abbey, whereas Brunel ended up in Kensal Green Cemetery. Uh, a lot of people didn't think he was such a great guy because of his tendency uh, towards innovation and, and, if you like, the, the accusation that, that he showed off and squandered money because he wasn't this sort of jobbing work-a-day engineer that sort of did what he was asked to all the time. That said, a lot of people at the time did recognise his genius. Certainly a lot of his fellow engineers greatly respected him and, of course, it was really as a sort of monument to Brunel that Sir John Hawkshaw and various others decided that they would finish uh, work on the Clifton Suspension Bridge once and for all. That's uh, later this year, celebrating its 150th anniversary of its opening, uh, which, of course, you know, was um, five years after Brunel's death. 
but but yes, I mean there there were very fulsome tributes to him when he died in in some of the papers. But but really, he kind of disappears from popular history. If you go back to sort of you know children's books or school books about the Industrial Revolution or about the Golden Age of Victorian engineers, he doesn't really get much of a look in until about the the 1950s or 60s. Then he starts being rehabilitated. Um, and of course, you know, I suppose you could say it reaches its peak um, when some years ago the BBC did its, um, you know, 100 greatest Britons of all time. Uh, and we had Jeremy Clarkson pleading the case for Brunel, who did indeed come second only after Churchill. So nowadays we, we think he's a great geezer. But really until um, 40 or 50 years ago, he was kind of forgotten. The uh, only time you'd ever see sort of any reference to him was usually either in reference to the um, the Great Western Railway or, of course, the Great Eastern, which would be wheeled out as a sort of example of the uh, the gargantuan ambitions of some Victorians. It's interesting what you said about how, for seemingly about 100 years, he wasn't that popular, was, wasn't really someone who was talked about that much. Why do you think he came back into public consciousness? Good question. I, I can only offer you a few theories. First of all, there's a guy called Lionel Rolt, who was one of the greatest um, historians of the uh, of the Industrial Age. He wrote a biography of Brunel, which was published in late 40s, early 50s, I think it was. And this was a um, very uncritical biography, but also very readable. And it's one of these things that sort of people still read to this day. That played a part in it. I think, I think what, what's also going on, though, is that... Brunel is kind of media-friendly in a way sort of nowadays that wasn't so important in, in previous decades. That There is a good script to Brunel. He tells a good story. I mean, he's uh, he is flamboyant. He's physically very, very brave, I mean, often to the point of recklessness. It's a good tale with a sort of beginning, middle and end. And And the other thing about him, of course, is that as a human being, he's flawed and as any sort of... A uh, novelist or scriptwriter will tell you, you need your, your good guys to be a little bit bad and your bad guys to be a little bit good. Um, and, and there is a bit of bad in Brunel. There is this this recklessness. He's also, frankly, you know, a, he's a bit of a bully. You know, he, he, he kicks around his assistants a lot. He's not terribly good with the uh, the contractors uh, brought in to, to, to do various bits of work on his behalf, particularly to build uh, sections of the railway. So, I mean, he, he is a very flawed personality, and, and in that sense, that makes him all the more interesting. And the BBC poll that you mentioned earlier, I mean, that I think that's an incredible result for Brunel. I mean, to come ahead of people like Shakespeare, Newton, Jane Austen, Nelson, can he really legitimately be held to be the second greatest Briton of all time, or do there's something of an anomaly there? It was a bit of fun. Jeremy Clarkson did a very good job of of making the case for Brunel, uh, but you know, seriously, can can we sort of say that any one of these is really any better than anyone else? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't have put him second. But then again, I don't know that I'd have put Churchill first. I mean, it's it's all in the eye of the beholder. But you know, it it was a great bit of fun at the time, and. Obviously, I think sort of illustrates um, the, the the extent to which uh, he is now revered in a way that he wasn't in his own lifetime. I suppose related to that, Brunel is an engineer. The, the other people that you generally think of as British heroes are doing more glamorous things traditionally. They might be artists, might be writers, politicians, kings. 
How did Bruno manage to get into that group? That is a, it's a very interesting question, that, isn't it? And I think the, what it comes down to basically is, is part, partly his own sort of um, flamboyance as a person, but it's partly also because he his, his designs are so charismatic. He pays a great deal of attention to, to how things look as well as uh, how, how well they work. Um, you know, he, he would be horrified, you know, if you were to bring him back in a time machine now, he, he would be appalled at the way in which our schools and universities split people up into the sciences and the humanities, you know, as far as he was concerned, uh, art was, was just as important as engineering um, and, and that in order to, to work well, it, it had to look good too. Um, so... I, I suppose that the, the most interesting example is is the Clifton Suspension Bridge. His original design um, was going to have sphinxes at either end. It was all going to be Egyptian-themed. And on the piers, there were also going to be these um, uh, cast-iron panels showing the whole process of, of how the bridge had been, been built. Um, all of these things were, were lost um, in, in the cost-cutting attempt to get the, the, the bridge finally opened. But he crosses over because everyone knows he's not just some bricky or nut-strangler. Uh, he, he's a guy who's interested in making things look good uh, as well as work good. And after reading your book, if someone wanted to go and visit one of Brunel's great projects, which would be the one place you'd tell them to go and see that, that is actually quite a tricky one because there's, there's, there's a few Brunel places that, that are worth looking at. So without uh, favouring one above the other, there's three places that I think we, we, are worth looking at. First of all is the Clifton Suspension Bridge itself. You know, If you've never been there, it's very interesting. Um, they've got a, a visitor centre that will tell you a bit about the place and, uh, as I understand it, a new one opening later this year. There is the SS Great Britain, of course, um, which is uh, unbelievably well done. It's, it's, it is it is one of the uh, the south of England's leading visitor attractions, and quite rightly so. The story of, uh, of how the the ship, or rather, you know, just this rotting hulk that was in the Falkland Islands got, got brought back is, is an epic in, in itself. And, of course, over the last 40-plus years, it's been done up amazingly well. It, it's a very good visitor experience. The third one which might not be quite so obvious, is uh, STEAM, uh, the Museum of the Great Western Railway in Swindon, which isn't entirely about Brunel, but has some very good displays on Brunel and his work and does, I think, a really good job of explaining how he built the railway in the first place and how, you know, this is all new and untried and untested technology that, that, that he's using. That was Eugene Byrne. Brunel... Pocket Giants is out now, published by the History Press. And just before we go, here's a reminder that BBC History magazine is holding two-day events in Bristol's M-Shed on the weekend of the 15th and 16th of March. We begin with the Vikings Day on the Saturday and follow that with a First World War Day event on the Sunday. In each case, you'll get the chance to hear talks from a range of expert historians and you'll enjoy a buffet lunch. For more information and tickets for these events, please visit historyextra.com forward slash events. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we may well read out some of them in future episodes. And you can also keep in touch with us on social media, 
On Twitter, we're at History Extra. Also, we're at facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, where we have quizzes, blogs, history news stories, image galleries and more. Next week, we'll be finding out about a Babylonian tablet that's become an international news sensation. And Joanne Harris, the author of Chocolat, will be telling us why she's turned to Norse mythology for her latest book. Do join us for that. This History Extra podcast was recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. 